Good afternoon. Maybe I'll just start with a little announcement. It's nice that uh, we're not wearing masks, not required, completely optional for some people. They feel I'd like to have masks on. If that's true for you, of course, be wearing masks, and if not... There's a way in which we still definitely want to take care of each other. In addition to wearing masks, if you, earlier we were doing, then some of the ways we can take care of each other is to wear unscented products. I'll say that uh, early in my retreat career, I would just use my regular shampoo from home. Of course I did, even though there's all these announcements, you know, instead of products. But uh, now that I don't use scented products, I'm really sensitive to scented products. And there's something about being on retreat that uh, it just kind of heightens our senses. And for some people, it's a chemical sensitivity. And for some people, it's a fragrance sensitivity. So whether it's natural oils or you know, uh, something not so natural, just a request to not use scented products while you're here, just a few more days. You can use them when you get back home. And then in the same way, to not talk to one another or to write notes to one another. It's just at this time we're allowing everybody to have their own experience. We don't know where others are, and it can be, we don't know what impact it'll have, just this speaking to others, so request to honor the silence with notes as well as with speaking. So today I'd like to share a story from the Buddhist tradition. This comes from the commentarial tradition. So it's some years after the time of the Buddha. And uh, the version that I'll be telling is uh, kind of like rewritten in modern times with a little more details uh, putting in there. And is true of many of stories like this, that there's some extremes that are getting pointed to, but it's a way to like help um, make a point or like we can feel into like what's being pointed to, what's like the message. Even though sometimes maybe the particulars we don't resonate with or we might be like dismissive of, but can we use this as a, a story that's trying to point the way or teach or relay something. And so this is the story of a young woman at the you know, a time of uh, ancient India. And she had been born into a very poor household. Her family name was Gotama.
Gotami. And people called her Kisa Gotami because Kisa means like skinny, skinny Gotami. So maybe mocking her, making fun of her, like maybe she didn't fit in because she was so thin. Kisa Gotami. And she married into a wealthy family. But her in-laws held her in contempt. She didn't quite fit in. They didn't appreciate her. They didn't like her. They treated her poorly. So Kisa Gotami then gave birth to a child. And with the birth of this child, the family started to treat her differently. Because now the first grandchild, and this was like, you know, something to be celebrated, and this is wonderful, and and Kisa was a good mother, and, you know, took good care of this child, and so Kisa, her life really changed. She had this baby she could care for, her in-laws are treating her much better, and this in my mind, I can also imagine, you know, just the way that she thought about herself and her life situation was, you know, had a big change when she had a baby. So one day, as Kisa, after her child had uh, learned to walk, and she and this child is out for a walk, the child trips and falls. And Kisa goes to pick up the child, and the child is not responding. And you can imagine that she's thinking like, oh, maybe the child is just unconscious, or something isn't quite right, so if I just, you know, shake <laughs> this child, it'll wake up. And she tried to revive, you know, wake up, this, her beloved child. And she tried everything she could think of, and nothing seemed to work. And she was convinced that, okay, just, there's got to be something here that can make this beloved child of mine wake up. And in her anguish and grief, she was unable to quite comprehend that actually her child had died. Just the heartbreak of this. And just for a mother to lose a child, it's heartbreaking, but I think all of us have had loss. That has been heartbreaking, and maybe there's... Maybe it wasn't as um, obvious or giant as losing a child, but maybe there was something in our life that we felt like uh, had turned our life around, had made a difference, and then to lose that. Something that once we had this, that we felt better about ourselves and or people treated us differently or something that we were kind of like identified with and then to lose that like wow like this is devastating 
And so we can also, right, we would doesn't try to initially wouldn't think like, oh, it's gone forever. We would think, oh, no, it's just temporarily gone or something like this. So Kisa, when she couldn't revive her child, she rushed home and asked her relatives to help. But they could see that the child was no longer living, and they tried to convince Kisa Gotami of this, but she was determined, no, 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 he's still alive. We just have to find the right medicine or do the right thing, and this will come back. And so when her relatives or extended family couldn't convince her, she's like, you guys don't understand, and leaves and goes to like the neighbors carrying her child, who's not alive any longer, and carrying this child and say, do you have some medicine that can help? You can imagine, right? She's just trying to find a way back to what she had before. And so the people in the neighborhood could see that that the child was no longer living, and they tried to help and console her, and but they couldn't. And some people thought, like, okay, she's uh, crazed, and maybe we're dismissive of her. Maybe they even closed the door and chased her away. But she was determined, and she carried on. She carried this child from door to door. And some versions of this story just have, like, a one-line sentence or say that Kisa Gotami was crazed with grief. And when we hear that version of the story, we might just say, oh, okay, that's, that's just, you know, easy to be dismissive and think about, oh, that was just back then. But what are some of the ways in which we've had a loss, especially something that we've been identified with or that's been a support for us and that we couldn't see clearly that things had shifted and changed and we were really wanting them to stay the same. It's not easy to make this shift, to recognize this. We might even ask, well, what lengths would we go to to try to keep things to be the same? And we might even say that our society sometimes even tries to encourage this thinking. Oh yeah, things don't have to change. You're going to have some cosmetic surgery or <laughs> or maybe there's uh, lots of questionable treatments or supplements that we could do for ourselves when we find it's ourselves, our bodies that have changed. Or maybe we've had relationships that have changed or jobs that have changed, things that were important to us and really helped how we identified ourselves. So returning to the story, so Kisa Gotami, she comes to the house eventually of one of the elders, one of the elders of the town, and the elder sees, oh, the child is no longer living, and there isn't any medicine that's going to help this child, but the mother needs some help. And so this uh, 
this elder woman, woman said to Kisa Gotami, why don't you go see the Buddha, the enlightened one, and ask him whether he has any medicine for you and your child. So Kisa Gotami asks, well, where is the Buddha? And this uh, elder woman told her, and so Kisa Gotami still goes there, still cradling her child. And then when she reaches to where the Buddha is, she went straight up to the Buddha, bows down to him, and crying out to him, Master Gotama, I beg you, please give me the medicine which I need to revive my child. Straight away, like the Buddha sees the baby is no longer alive. And Kisa Gotami is not in a state that she can really take that in and understand. And in my mind, I'm thinking, well, maybe there's a way also that the Buddha understood that there's like stages to grief. Maybe the Buddha understood that, okay, Kisa Gotami just right now isn't able really to Maybe she's like in denial and needs some time and space and support to work through this, this natural process of grief over a loss. So the Buddha says to Kisa Gotami, I have some medicine for you. But in order for this medicine to work, you need to go get some mustard seed from a neighbor's house. Kisakatomi's like, okay, mustard seed is plenty. We all cook with this. This is not going to be a problem. And the Buddha says, and it needs to come from a household in which there hasn't been any loss or death. Okay, whatever. I'll, I'll, I'm sure I can do this. Kisako Tommy thinks, and she goes to the first household. Do you guys have any mustard seed? Yeah. Here. Great, thanks. Turns around, goes to see the Buddha. Oh, wait. And has there been any loss in your household or any death? Yes. My grandmother just died three weeks ago. Kisika Tommy's probably thinking, oh, okay, that's bad luck on the first house. Goes to the second house. Is there any mustard seed? Yes. Has there been any loss or death in this household? Yes. My grandfather died recently. Okay. Kisika Tommy goes to the third house. Is there any mustard seed? Yes. Has there been any loss or death? Yes. A family member died. And you can imagine how this story goes, right? Kisukotami goes to household, to household, to household. Asking the same thing. Everybody says yes to the mustard seed and says yes also to the loss. So maybe eventually she stops even asking about the mustard seed and starts asking, has there been any loss here? Yes. And so 
She desperately wanted this not to be true, but she was starting to see the maybe these experiences again and again, kind of like the reality of the situation. We might even say kind of like getting aligned with what's actually happening. Because she couldn't also help in all these different households noticing how many houses have lost a child, either at birth or as a baby. We know the infant mortality, right, thousands of years ago was quite different than it is now. So, this maybe we might imagine as the daylight is fading and it's no longer makes sense to be going household to household, she really begins to realize that she wasn't alone or unusual in losing a child. And Anushka talked about kind of like this fellowship of kind of like the shared dukkha. Maybe there's a sense of, oh, this is kind of what happens. And maybe there's a way, there's this realization that the universe hadn't like singled out Kisakotami to punish her. Or maybe she had this idea that the death of her child hadn't didn't mean that the universe malfunctioned and somehow that uh, she has to get it right again, fix it. But maybe she recognized that this is what happens. Sometimes children die. And it's heartbreaking. And we can recognize this heartbreaking nature of it. Without having to pretend or deny or push it away, when difficulties arise, of course we might be angry and want to blame someone, or maybe we feel isolated and ashamed, or maybe we think that no one else has the same difficulties we do. The story has like an extreme difficulty. Maybe we have extreme difficulties in our life. Maybe our life, our dif- difficulties in our life aren't that extreme, but there's no value in comparing whose is more difficult. For all of us, the dukkha, the difficulty that we're feeling, is the dukkha that we're feeling. It doesn't help to compare tragedies. All of us have dukkha. There are no exceptions, no exceptions. So then, Kisa Gotami is still feeling the pain of the loss, but maybe her heart and mind are no longer so disturbed by the anger and the denial. And then in the story, we might imagine that she like lovingly is carrying her child to the charnel ground, to the place where they honored and respected bodies that were no longer living. And then she uttered this verse. It's not just a truth for one village or town, nor is it a truth for a single family, but for every world settled by gods and humans, impermanence, indeed, 
is what is true. So she recognized that not only do children die, but we're able to recognize things change. The things that we don't want to change, change. And this turns out to be really powerful, this recognition. In the biography of the Buddha, in the first people that he is teaching, after he's awakened, and he's like, wow, I, you know, he decides to teach others. Those of you who know the story of the Buddha, he goes and uh, he finds his former companions that he was practicing with. And he thinks, okay, well, they can understand. And he gives some teachings to them. And the first person that had awakening experience, a person named Kundanya, has this awakening experience and says, Whatever is subject to arising is subject to cessation. Same idea, impermanence. Things arise and pass away. They're not permanent. They don't stay there. And then still with the Buddha's biography, after teaching these former um, practitioners he used to practice with, and and there was five people, the sixth person to become awakened happened to be a wealthy merchant that encountered the Buddha, and the Buddha gives this wealthy merchant a teaching. This person becomes awakened, and the first thing that this person says is part of their awakening. Everything that is subject to arising is subject to cessation. So this deep insight into impermanence is a doorway, is a gateway to freedom. And sometimes we need some thing that's uh, really difficult to help us understand this. And I know it's true for many of us. Certainly it was true for me. Like I had this intellectual understanding of death. Of course people die. But it's not until a family member died that I I I understood it in a different way. And so this impermanence is not about just an intellectual understanding. Of course things end. This retreat is going to end. The end of whatever you were doing before you came to the retreat, right? That ended, you know, of course. So there's something about seeing this arising and passing, the impermanence the, of experiences and objects. Because, you know, objects are not necessarily becoming impermanent before our eyes, but the things that have the nature to come together also have the nature to fall apart. Of course, they do. And in this story, right, this is a heartbreaking, sad story of Kisa Gotami and losing this baby, but there's also benefits to impermanence. We often like focus on the challenging aspect of it, that things that we want go away or things that we think are going to be a satisfying, lasting source of happiness turn out not to be so a lasting source of happiness because they change relationships, jobs, bodies, mental capacity, all these things. But what are some of the things about impermanence that are also a support for life and support for practice. 
one is maybe even loss, maybe even death, actually helps put things in perspective. There's a way in which it kind of helps bring some depth and meaning to our lives. Maybe we can start to maybe articulate internally or maybe even externally a way that we hadn't before our priorities. Maybe it becomes clear what's important when we've experienced a loss. Maybe just things become clear what's important. Something else about the things being impermanent or changing. Of, of course, it makes sense when I when I say this. It's obvious, but maybe we don't say it so clearly to ourselves. But because things are impermanent, it allows growth and development to happen. Right? If things were always the same, then we would be stuck. There would be like no movement towards greater peace and freedom. Just be the same. Groundhog Day, you know, over and over and over again. Groundhog Day being a reference to a movie, some of you may know, where just the same day happens again and again and again. And also something about impermanence or things changing is that if we feel like, okay, I need to have some security, I want things to, I'll be safe and I create this uh, setting, whether it's in our mind or literally out there in the world, in which we have some steadiness, some stability, where things are very like consistent, and like, okay, this, this, okay, I, I'll be able to relax and be happy with this. But it gets stultifying. It be, ends up becoming like a prison, so there's a way in which even what we think, like, okay, as soon as if everything would just stop changing or what I wanted to stop changing, there's a way that that can actually not be something that supports our life. There's a way which might become claustrophobic or such a tight and constrictive if we didn't have this idea of things are changing. And then... There's this way in which wisdom comes from seeing this impermanence on deeper and deeper levels in a more subtle and subtle ways. The story is pointing to this extreme example, but there's a way in which we might also see how there's a flickering or a fluttering of experience. And when I'm talking about this, I'm pointing to experience, not concepts. This is a big part of practice, is to notice the difference, but to actually notice that our ideas about things tend to be static, but our experience of things, not always the same. I love peanut butter. Usually when I have peanut butter, it's good. I don't know. I enjoy it. I put it on celery, apples, toast. It's something I grew up with. It's a thing from my childhood. I just like peanut butter. But um, eating too much peanut butter, right? It's not good. (laughs) 
right? So it's not like peanut butter is like always pleasant. So it's, I can't always say like peanut butter is good. Sometimes the experience of it is pleasant and sometimes the pleasant experience is not pleasant. And so just part of practice is to notice how things are moving and shifting and changing. Maybe I should be a little more clear, careful with my language. Experiences are moving, shifting, and changing. And that is so much what this practice is about. Anushka and I are often saying, well, feel it in your body. Part of feeling it in your body is to really tune into experience as distinct from an idea or a concept and story making. But, you know, to be here with what's arising. And we'll start to see kind of like the flexible or changing nature of them. And you might say, okay, well, that's nice, Diana, but why would we do that? One is, it's part of the aligning of how things are, the Dharma, nature of reality, that Anushka and I have been pointing to, but also start to notice that it just stops making sense to really be holding on to something that is changing. Like we don't have to make ourselves soften the grip. We don't have to make ourselves let go. It just no longer just makes sense to let go, to hold on if something is slipping away already. So seeing impermanence in more and more subtle ways and in more and more in all the different ways that we try to, we assume things are permanent This helps for this softening and this opening and this letting go. Including, you know, the ways that we want to identify with whatever it is we identify with. It changes. That, of course, isn't always the same. I'll talk a little bit more about this, but this letting go is the doorway to freedom. Seeing impermanence deeply over and over is just a natural support for this letting go. So this is part of the way in which like we're meditating together, not only because it helps bring ease and clarity and some stability, which are all important, but it also helps us to see this and to know it in a different way, so that there can be this letting go and this opening to greater freedom. Right? Of course, this practice is not about acquiring, attaining, and getting, even though we sometimes use that language of you know, meditative states or something like that. But it's not about you know, just getting more and more. We've all tried this, getting more and more, and if it were working, we wouldn't be here, right? But maybe I'll go back to the story of Kisa Gotami because it doesn't end there, just with her realization about uh, impermanence. 
So she goes up to the Buddha, and this is how the story goes, and and he bows to him and thanks him for his teaching. And the in this kind of like modern rendition, the Buddha asks her whether she was bringing the mustard seed. And she says, no. Mustard seed is easy to obtain, but a house untouched by death cannot be found. And so the Buddha says to her, when I said that I had some medicine for you, you may have thought I was promising to cure your child. But indeed, the medicine was not for your child, but for you. And I can see the medicine has done its work. And then deeply affected by what had happened in this day, Kisako Tommy you know, recognizing, oh, there's, there's something, there's been a shift in my understanding of what's important and how I want my life to unfold. So she asks the Buddha, can I ordain? I'd like to become a follower of yours. And he agrees, and she does. She ordains. So she becomes a monastic. And then, as I was saying, an insight into impermanence can support this uh, sense of uh, letting go, which supports freedom. And some of you may know that there's this collection of poems attributed to women, and they are definitely have, uh, I shouldn't, they're attributed to women, but they definitely feel like they were written by women because they have a lot to do with childbirth and a lot to do about with children and husbands. And this collection of verses, poems by women, the oldest in the human literature right now that have been discovered so far. And this is of women's awakening poems. So when they become awakened, like some of the description that they would say or utter or something. And so Kisa Gotami, there's a weakening poem that she has that's been preserved for these thousands of years. I'm just going to say a, um, a sh- short p- portion of it. She says, I've plucked out the dart, laid down the burden and done what needed to be done. I, Kisagotami Terry, Terry is a epithet. It's um, it's a uh, respect term of respect for an elder nun. I, Kisagotami Terry, my heart well released, have said this. I've plucked out the dart, laid down the burden, and done what needed to be done. I, Kisa Gotami Terry, my heart well released, like having complete freedom, have said this. So she's like saying, I have said this. Well, this is a person who has confidence. She's uh, knows, like, has done what has needed to be done. This is, implies like followed the Buddha's teachings, followed the Dharma, 
I've plucked out the dart, laid down the burden. So we might ask, what does it mean to pluck out the dart? What is the dart? And we could ask us, for each of us, what is the dart? What is there? Is there something that um, we, maybe we first have to recognize? Is there an embedded dart? We might suggest maybe it's something like wishing things could be different than they were. Or maybe it's wishing that things would not change. Or maybe it's all the ways in which we are, I like Anushka's example about, you know, kind of like, you know, turning the like, I'm going to ignore this uh, portion of myself and ignore this portion until we find ourselves crumpled. And maybe plucking out the dart is a little bit like allowing these pages to unfold so that there's more this wholeness, the completeness. And Kisa Gotami's poem, she also says, I lay down the burden. What is it that we're carrying that feels heavy? I don't want to say, like in the story, of course there's grief, and grief feels heavy. Heavy Grief is just a natural process. But what's being pointed to here is putting down the burden of what's extra of making everything be about me. I mean, this kind of like me focus to everything. That's extra. We don't need that, turns out. Me or mine, like this is mine, this is not mine. Oh, this is mine, but that's not mine. Notice how there's a little bit of that kind of like quietly, subtly going on in the mind. So putting down the burden is referring to no longer having this sense of a center, this core that's at the center of all the experiences. Instead, it's just experiences arising and passing away. And there's this recognition about that that helps or maybe should say is the experience of freedom. Instead of like taking a slice of this, uh, you know, experiences arising and passing away and grabbing onto it and say, oh, no, no, okay, this this is mine and I'm going to make it stay in the same way, right? When there's a river that's flowing, we don't take a cup, dip into the river and say, this is the river, In some kind of way, we're doing this. This is me. Not recognizing the flow of experiences. So this idea of impermanence, some of you will have, you'll know, that it's one of the so-called three characteristics Anicca, dukkha, anatta. Anicca, impermanence. Dukkha, unsatisfactory, stressful suffering. Anatta, there isn't this stable core 
at the center. There isn't a center here to which experiences are happening. Sometimes we think like that. There's just experiences happening. And you don't have to get all tangled up and try to think about this. This is something that can feel like, what? Wait, I, I don't know about that. And I'll say for me, certainly when I heard this teaching, I thought, okay, I don't know about that thing. <laughs> That's just completely unbelievable. What are they talking about? I'm here. What do you mean? There's like not a self or something like this. And I thought, okay, well, those Buddhists, you know, I like this other stuff, but you know, that I'll just leave to the side. And you're welcome to do that too. But I will just say it's often not until we have some experiences, maybe some meditative experiences, or maybe when we tune into like the flow sometimes can feel, have this sense of like, oh yeah, there isn't a center here necessarily to the sense of flow. And then it's when it becomes a little bit more experiential, then it becomes a little bit more um, understandable or graspable. So I don't know, I want to kind of like say this as a, um, as there's more than one way to approach this. If it's the first time you've heard this idea, it might feel, wait, what? That's okay. So this idea of anicca, dukkha, anatta, we often, shorthand, we would say impermanent suffering and not self. But, Something that's interesting, I think, is if we use suffering and permanent not-self, then there's a way in which those are kind of, can be like concepts and we're like imputing an ontological status of objects. So we're, we're like making things things. That's a little bit clumsy way of talking about it. Maybe what I want to point to is maybe it's a little more accessible is um got this idea from Gil Fronstall he pointed this out and I thought oh yeah that if we instead of thinking about three characteristics what if we think about like adjectives or perceptions or something so this idea maybe instead of impermanent we just use like inconstant oh yeah things are shifting or changing, some of them faster than others, but just to like in constant, the experience is not constant. We are not just having one single experience, right? Our experiences are changing. So in constant, and then maybe to instead of uh, dukkha, maybe we could use this adjective as painful, stressful, uncomfortable. Like, yeah, even in things that are pleasant, there's this little seed of discomfort because there's a little part of us that doesn't want it to end. Oh, I hope this doesn't end. (laughs) This is so great. If only things could just stay like this. Yeah. When I first heard this, I remember thinking like, really, is that true? And so I started to like notice like in the most pleasant experiences, most pleasant sensual experiences. Is that true that there's that little kernel of uh, dukkha? I'll just 
So you can find out for yourself. Just have this, you know, little gentle inquiry. So then, then anatta, I'm using this idea of not self, but maybe I kind of like this idea of not a core, not a center, not an essence, this thing that's stable there to which everything is happening. If you look for that, you won't find it. You won't find this. Like, what? What would? What is this thing that would be this store, this core, stable essence? When we look, what we find are experiences. How could it be otherwise? Seeing, tasting, smelling, hearing, feeling, thinking. And so we're not talking about, oh, this is something, some belief system you have to adopt or, you know, this isn't some creed that you have to buy into. No, this is about when there's an understanding or a seeing of this, there's a letting go and there's freedom. We could also say this is a description of freedom as this recognition of and the changing nature of experiences. So in some ways, that the reason why we come to meditation practice is to, in some, like, or on a meditation retreat, is to help cultivate also the opposite, some stability, and some pleasant experiences, some sense of well-being, and maybe a sense of, kind of getting a little bit sense more of wholeness in our sense of ourself. Because it's in kind of like cultivating the stability and some of the pleasantness and this sense of wholeness helps us to see the anicca, Dukkha, anatta, inconstant, painful, not self. But not only to help us see, but to see so that in a way that it's um, can just be integrated. So, we're, so part of what we're doing here is we're cultivating and developing the opposites of the three characteristics. And then the three characteristics show themselves. But now that I've mentioned this, maybe you could have some curiosity. Like, is this constant? Is this 100% pleasure when I'm having a pleasant experience? And not because we want to make things be a bummer or something like that. Just because it helps shift our relationship to that. Helps us so that we're no longer like grabbing on or holding on or saying, oh, this is mine or this is me. So there's this way and we can shift from, rather than connecting our experiences to our personal history, our personal needs, our personal desires, our personal identities, which of course we're going to do, 
the shift is also to noticing the stream of the simple, impersonal, moment-to-moment perceptions. And to feel the ease with that. And again, this is not something that you have to make happen or something that you have to, a belief system you have to adopt. I just like to point to, you know, this, like this point to part of the nature of reality that Anushka and I have been talking about is the Dharma. And to kind of like align with this in a way that supports greater peace and ease and freedom. And then, maybe I'll say there's one more story about Kisa Gotami. She, after becoming awakened, she sometimes would go into the woods to meditate. This is what the monastics would do. The Buddha would do the same. Go to meditate. And as she's meditating, Mara shows up. And Mara says, I don't have the exact words in front of me, I'll summarize, says, Oh, what are you doing here alone in the woods? Are you looking for a man? <laughs> right? It's this Mara, right? This is uh, this character. She says, I see you, Mara. Mara just disappears. So this, maybe this Mara representing, I don't know, things that get in the way. I don't know why this particular story has, actually I should say Mara does this to a number of women in the story, in the in the suttas, they all see him and he all just goes away. So maybe there's some encouragement <laughs> for women and men and our non-binary friends do, of course. Impermanence and constancy and dukkha and not self. Let's just sit for a moment.
Kiseko Tommy says, I've plucked out the dart, laid down the burden, and done what needed to be done. What does that mean for us? Me, for all of us, it's different. This story of Kisegotami's story using maybe some extreme elements, but is can we tune into what's being pointed to? What's being offered in this story? Why it's been preserved in this tradition? for all these years. Maybe there's something meaningful there. If some of the particulars maybe don't land, but is there something there that feels like, oh, yeah, I can recognize something there. So thank you. Thank you for your kind attention. And now is some time for walking before we have dinner. Thank you.